0: this idea of how our lives tell a story, and there's three things that get communicated. It first tells whose we are or who we belong to. We are children of God, and Paul wants the Philippians to understand that, that that communicates something to the world. Um, The second one is what we are. We are lights of the world. And then thirdly, we're communicating through our lives the story we are telling is something particular about the nature of this faith that we have and the form that it takes. So let's look at verses 14 through the first part of 15 and this idea that our lives tell a story and it communicates whose we are. Um, some of you may have heard me tell this story before, but if you know my wife, she's the oldest of three uh, girls and her and particularly her middle sister, Catherine, have a very uh, strong, striking resemblance to their father. So much so that uh, a couple times in public, Um, Perfect strangers, at least to the two of them, people they didn't know, have come up to them and said, you're so-and-so's daughter, aren't you? You're Bill Barnes' daughter, and they're really struck by that. One in particular story was such that uh, it's worth sharing. Her middle sister, Catherine, was living in Africa, uh, in Malawi, actually, for a year, working with the missions agency there. She went on a safari uh, in Malawi with a few people from the agency that she was with, and there's a a larger group that's a part of this safari that she's on. And uh, in the truck, as they're going through the bush of Africa here, uh, a gentleman who she had never seen before in her entire life, again, this is in Africa, looks over her and says, you're Bill Barnes' daughter. (laughs) And you can imagine the shock and the fear and the uncertainty of that. She's like, "Uh, yes, how did you know that? She said, well, you look exactly like him. It turns out that this had been a family friend who uh, my sister-in-law, Catherine, had obviously never met, but who knew my wife's family very well and could tell from the resemblance, you are a child of Bill Barnes. Paul was telling the Philippians here, you are children of God. You, as children of God, therefore, are to bear his likeness, his resemblance, And part of that shines through Philippians and Christians with how you live and how you conduct yourself. We bear the image of God and we are to live in such a way that our lives tell this story, either promoting our Father's honor and glory or negatively diminishing and tarnishing that glory in that image. Paul is doing something unique and special here in verses 14 and 15. He's drawing a parallel between the Old Testament people of God, the children of God known as Israel, and the church, the New Testament people of God, the Philippians here in this case, but all of us here who identify as Christians, and he's comparing and contrasting. That's why we read Exodus 16 earlier. We see that throughout their history, Israel was prone to grumbling prone to complaining, prone to disputing. And they were known as the children of God. And Paul is saying, this is not how children ought to behave. Grumbling and disputing is to not be a part of your lives, children. We reflect our parents whether we want to or not. Young people, young children who are here this morning know that you reflect your parents and how you conduct your lives. But here's the thing, for those of us who are older, And we're adults now. We still, in many ways, are reflecting back our parents. Paul says, don't grumble, don't complain. That's not conducive to being someone who reflects the image of their father as children of God. Rather, he says, be blameless, be innocent, be children of God without blemish. Now, we need to be careful. This is not a call to perfectionism here. Paul is not saying, hey, get your act together because the world is watching you. He's saying be blameless, be innocent, be without blemish, be people that do conduct their lives in such a way that you can be free from bringing shame or disrepute upon your Father in heaven. This is how you ought to carry yourself. And Paul says children of God are to be without blemish and to live in such a way, this high and holy calling, and they're to do it in the midst of what he calls a crooked and twisted generation. I need to pause for a moment moment and step back from this and really try to make sense of what Paul is saying when he uses this language of living in a world of a crooked and twisted generation. That word generation there can mean a couple different things, but really in essence he is talking about the larger world and culture that the philippians live in he's not talking about biological uh, family generations he's talking about kind of the world and the culture at large that the philippians live in remember they are a part of the larger roman empire and roman culture a totally pagan and secular world very religious mind you in many ways it wasn't an irreligious society it was just not a christian one and they were called to live out their faith in the midst of this we're going to talk about this in just a moment how this applies to us but This is what this looks like, right? The scriptures are regularly telling us again and again, as the people of God, this is the kind of world that we live in. I want to share a few references with you. Psalm 12, verse 8 says this, On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Jude, the second to last book of the Bible, it's kind of one of those one chapter books. In verses 17 through 19, Jude writes this, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And then Paul himself to the Romans writes in his first chapter, essentially the second chapter, half of that whole first chapter is describing the nature of the world in which we find ourselves and the conduct of those outside of the kingdom and how they live, what they do with their bodies, what they do with their mouths, the things that they say, how they treat their parents. And Paul concludes that great chapter by saying this, they not only do these things, those who engage in them, but they give approval also to those who practice it. So they not only do it themselves, they give a thumbs up, two thumbs up to those who go about doing the same things. This is the kind of world that we live in, Paul is saying. As Christians today, we must not lose sight of the fact that we live in a dying, decaying, dark culture world. This is where we live. This is our reality. And we fool ourselves and harm ourselves into thinking that we live in a place that is anything other than that. Now, let me say this and specify and clarify this. We're not saying that God's creation is bad or evil. God's creation is good. The created world that he has made is good and it's still good. It's fallen, it's broken, it cries out for redemption, Paul says, but it is good. But what we as fallen human beings create out of and make out of God's creation, that's culture. And that is black and that is tarnished and that is dark. And that is what we have to be aware of, that we are living out our lives in that kind of environment. We could stand up here for the next 10 hours and go through a laundry list of all the things that our world and our culture are throwing at us, that are all the things that Paul reminds us here fall under the category of being crooked and twisted. I think we as Christians, particularly in America here, have to ask ourselves at this particular moment in time, how do we see the world that we live in? Because that will matter how we conduct our faith as children of God. Right. One of the big things that a lot of American Christians are wrestling with, and if you're here today and you're not an American, you may not uh, see this from where you are in your own country, although I will say that if your country is more of the western bend, you may see some of it as well. But here in America in particular, this is strong. Uh, as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, are we living in Jerusalem and trying to guard against the siege of the outside world, Right, protecting our sacred kingdom, or Are we living in exile in Babylon, in a totally foreign world, called to live out our faith in a totally different place of exile? See, those are two very different things, and that matters with how we see and practice our faith. And I would submit to you, and again, we don't have the time, but I would submit to you that we are living in the latter. This is not Jerusalem that we guard against from all the outside evil forces. We are in Babylon. We're already there. We are in exile. We are called now to learn how to live out our faith in this world. And it looks different from simply throwing up defenses. Paul says we are called to live as children of God. But not only that, look at the second half of verse 15. We are to be lights in this world. We're to be lights in the world that we find ourselves. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light. You've probably heard that verse before. God is light. Therefore, if God is light, it only makes sense that his children then, his offspring, his sons and daughters, reflect that same light, mirror that same light, right? That we would be small, little, miniature luminaries that shine forth and mirror the great light who is God himself. Here's a picture of what this actually looks like in tangible form. For those of you that uh, have been a part of Christmas Eve services, either the one that we do sometimes at City Reform Church uh, on Christmas Eve or maybe in a church that you grew up in that does something similar. Christmas Eve services, a lot of times, um, candles are passed out, right? And sometimes in the tradition that we do, a lot of times it's silent night. That's kind of the last song that you sing. The lights go down. And usually the pastor or someone else will take a candle. And they'll light it from the main candle set at the front, the Advent candle set. And they'll take it from what's called the Christ candle. And they'll take that light and then they'll pass it and they'll light it. And that light then gets spread around and around and it ends up lighting up the whole room. You know, that actually is that liturgy, that ceremony is given to communicate a real message. Exactly what Paul is saying here. You are the lights of the world. This is how you are to live. Your light is derived from and taken from the one light who is Christ. I think Paul is also very much and intentionally wanting to connect to the words of his own master and Lord Jesus from Matthew 5:14 through 16. We put it at the front of the bulletin. I hope you got a chance to see that in the reflections section. This is where Jesus says to the disciples, "You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden." Right? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Look back at those reflections and see what Jesus says. "Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket." on a stand and it gives light to all the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven when Paul says to the Philippians you are lights in the world he is thinking and including all of that language that Jesus says in Matthew 5 you are lights so what do lights do then what do lights do well they reflect they refract we reflect we reflect the glory, the honor of God in our lives. It's a big part of what we do. Lights illuminate. They shine upon things. They expose things. They give honor to things that are good. When the light comes on things that are good, it gets shown for being good and true. When the light comes on things that are evil or wrong, it gets exposed as being wrong and evil. That's a big function of what light does as well. Jesus said this in uh, John 3 to Nicodemus in 19 through 21. Jesus said that light has come into the world, Nicodemus, mainly meaning himself. But light has come into the world. But the world, see, men and women of the world loved evil. They loved to remain in the dark. Their deeds were evil, and they ran away from the light. They didn't want to have their hearts exposed for what was really there. But Jesus has come as light to expose these things so that not that there would be judgment. He actually says that in that same section so that there would be healing, so there would be renewal, so that there would be life coming out of the light that shines in the darkness. We are called to do and be these things and we are given this description of being light in the world. We cannot be hidden. Light by its very nature cannot help but do these things we've been talking about. And so we too, as children of God and lights in the world, shouldn't be able but, but to help to do these things. We can't help it. It's part of our very nature. And what's really important for us to see and notice about what Paul says here in Philippians 2 and in also Matthew 5, the words of Jesus, notice from Jesus and from Paul, there is not a command to go and be light. He doesn't say, go be light to the world. He actually simply says, this is what you are. And as you come into a full understanding of what it means to be light, you will do these things. They will come out of you naturally. Neither Jesus nor Paul say, go be light. They say, you are light. Live out what you already are. You are light in the world. Thirdly, our lives tell a story. Who we belong to, that we belong to God is our Father, we are His children, sons and daughters. It also shows that we are light. Our lives should tell that story, that we are light in the world and also should communicate the nature of our faith. Look this last section here, 16 through 18 of our passage. Three things that we need to understand about the nature of our faith that communicates the story of our lives to the world. That our faith, first, we need to see is a dependent faith that's the nature of our faith it's a dependent faith that's why Paul says that the Philippians are to hold fast to the word of life this is language of dependency what does it mean to hold fast to something well just probably know what that already means think about it you cling to something tightly to hold fast is to cling to something literally in a life or death situation with all that you are as just for your very life dependent upon it you hold fast to it Remember, as Paul tells the Corinthians, that he, in his life and in his ministry, had been shipwrecked three different times. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being shipwrecked three different times? One of those times, he says, I was floating in the sea for a whole day and for a whole night, just floating in the ocean. I can promise you that Paul was clinging to something tightly in that moment. I can't help but think he has that memory and that experience in mind when he says to the Philippians, Hold tight and hold fast as if your life depended on it. And then, what is it that he wants them to hold on to? Well, he wants them to hold on to the word of life. Well, what is this? There's a little bit of speculation and uncertainty about what Paul's referencing here. Is he talking about the gospel, explicitly the message of the Christian faith, right? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Is this the word of life we cling to? Is he talking more broadly about the scriptures, The scriptures are described as the word of life. Is he saying cling to the scriptures and hold tight to the scriptures? Or is he talking about Jesus? Jesus is the word and certainly he is life. So is he saying cling and hold tight and hold fast to Jesus? Well, I think the answer is yes. It's all three of those things. It's the scriptures as the living and active word of God. It's the gospel as the message of hope and salvation for the world. It's the person and work of Jesus as our friend and savior and redeemer. That is what we hold tight to. That is what we don't lose sight of. And that means that our faith is a dependent faith by nature. It also means that our faith is sacrificial in nature. This is where Paul begins to pick up in these last few verses here on a very powerful Old Testament theme, a motif of Old Testament sacrifice. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible, if you're like me, you may get bogged down in Leviticus. You get through Genesis, you get through Exodus, you get to Leviticus, and you go, okay, this is, uh, not really sure what's happening here. Leviticus is actually a really beautiful book that actually tells the story of what Israel was to do by way of sacrifice, how the people of God and the priest of God were to make right and good sacrifices for God so that sin could be atoned for in the Old Testament view. And Paul, what he's doing here is basically putting himself in the place of an Old Testament priest. And he's saying, you have brought a sacrifice. It's your faith. It's your works. It's your service for others. You have allowed me to offer it up to God on your behalf, and I'm so pleased by it. And I know and I trust that I will not have labored in vain and that the giving of this sacrifice will accomplish the purpose that God has for it and that you have for it, Philippians. And when he says, I'm going to pour out this little drink offering of his own life, he's, he's diminishing himself in a, in a certain way there. He's saying, hey, my life, my ministry among you is just a small little drink offering compared to the greatness and the grandness of your great sacrifice that you have made, which is your faith. And so our faith then becomes sacrificial in its very nature. It becomes giving. It becomes a faith that is gracious, that's generous, that again in its very self is sacrificial, that dies to itself. Again, remember what Paul has already been saying here. Don't live for yourself. Don't consider your interests first. Don't consider your needs first. Give your life up for others. And this is what Paul is pointing to here. And he says that the nature of their faith also ought to be joyful. There's real joy. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of sorrow, there's real joy in their faith. Is your faith described that way? Would you say that your faith is joyful? Paul actually, for emphasis, says the same word twice. We don't translate it that way. We translate it as glad and rejoice. It's actually the same word. Paul says, Be joyful, and I am joyful. Be joyful with me, and let's be joyful together. There's a lot of joy that he's saying here. You should be joyful and rejoice with me. I am joyful, and I rejoice with you. There's emphasis added on the nature of their faith that is joyful at its very core. So I want to take just a moment here as we are kind of bringing this train into the station. Give us a few things to consider, some applications, some questions that we should ask ourselves as they apply really to our common life together certainly as individual christians if we're here we're christians it applies to us individually but really something to think about as our common life together do we as a church tell this one story right is this what's being reflected in our life together these things about being children of god of being lights in the world of having a sacrificial joyful faith that being the nature of our faith is that true of us here today do we live as children of god does our conduct and how we carry ourselves show that, reflect that? Again, not just on an individual level, but as a church. Are we grumblers, complainers? Did you pick up in Exodus 16 when Calvin read that early in the service that the people were actually not grumbling and complaining against Moses and Aaron, but against God? At the end of the day, all of our grumbling, all of our complaining, all of our disputing is not against that person or that thing or that situation that we find ourselves frustrated by. It is against God. Children, listen carefully. If you are grumbling and complaining against your parents, you're not complaining and grumbling against them. You are complaining and grumbling against God. That's a sobering thought. Parents, if you are grumbling and complaining against your children, you are grumbling and complaining against God as well because God gave them to you as well for your good, for mutual sanctification, for mutual growth and grace. You know, the opposite of grumbling and disputing, the antidote to that is contentment and thanksgiving. If we give due diligence and we labor and we strive to find contentment in life that God's given us, all the things that he's given us and we find ourselves being gracious and grateful and thankful people, then grumbling And disputing and complaining can't help but dissipate. Contentment and thanksgiving is our antidote to grumbling and complaining. Are we living as lights in the world? Listen, there's two great temptations that we're going to face when we think about what it means to live as lights in the world. The first is going to be to hide our light, right? As Jesus warned against. To hide our light under a basket or a bushel. I think a lot of times as Christians, when we think about hiding our light, we think about it in terms of evangelism. Right? Well, I, I... you know, I had a chance to share my faith and I just blew it, right? I chickened out, I hid my light, I didn't do it. I don't know that that's as much as what Paul has in mind here. As much as it is, again, our our greater conduct, how we live our lives. Remember, we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. A generation and a world and a culture that says to us, you are not pretty. You are not lovely. You are not beautiful. So therefore, when we believe that message, we think we have to change and alter ourselves and alter our appearance. Therefore, that means we have now bought into the narrative and story of the world and our light has become diminished. Listen, the world says to us, you have to have success and material things to find joy. And if we begin to buy into that narrative, rather than the narrative that God has for us, to live a faith of joy, to live a faith of contentment and a life of contentment, then guess what? Our light begins to be diminished as well. The world tells us all kinds of stories and lies that are alternative narratives, and we begin to buy into those things. Our light becomes diminished more and more, greater and greater. But We can also be guilty, though, of shining a bright, harsh, manufactured light on the world rather than a natural, beautiful glow of the sun or a fire. My kids hate it when I get them up in the morning and it's dark outside and I throw on the light overhead and go, hey, it's time to get up. This harsh you know, LED light from their lamp or from the ceiling light comes down on them going, oh. But have you ever been somewhere where you wake up with the sun? The sun's coming through the window in the east. It's natural, it's slow, it's easy. But eventually what happens with that light, right, is that it's so beautiful, it's so bright, you're not going to sleep through it. It will do the purpose for which it is set. You will stand up and you will get out of bed and you will start your day because of the light that's come in. There is a sense in which that is what we're called to do as Christians to be that kind of light in the world. Are we holding fast to the word of life? Are we exemplifying this dependent, reliant faith on Christ, our King? Are we living sacrificially? all areas of our lives. These are the things that Paul is calling us to, and he's reminding us how we live, how we conduct our lives. Tell a story. And either that story is going to be in congruence with and line up with what God has for us, and we will find ourselves being conformed more and more into the image of Christ, which is the great story he has for us, the story of his kingdom, the story of the people of his kingdom, or... Our lives can tell a different story, one that is centered upon ourselves, centered upon our own desires, centered upon our own wishes, and Paul's desire for the Philippians. And honestly, as your pastor, my desire for you, just as his was for them, is that it wouldn't be shown to be in vain at the end. you would live a life that shows that you are children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, but living as lights in the world. And my prayer for you, and I hope it's your prayer for one another, is that God would make this more and more real in your life so that you could live it out for all to see. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending us Christ is the light of the world himself, the one true light who has come into the world in a powerful way to expose the deeds of men and women that need to be exposed even our own hearts here today but another way to bring joy that we might walk in the light as he is in the light that we would run laugh thrive in that light that we would soak it up that we in turn then would show it to the world through how we live that our dependency is not upon the opinions of others, upon our money or our bank account or our stuff. Our dependency is not upon even our own works, no matter how good. Our dependency is upon the one who is life and light and joy himself. Jesus, our true king, would be enough for us that we would be satisfied with him, and that in Him, we would see ourselves as we truly are, children of the living God, sons and daughters of the Creator who's made us in His image. She calls us to live and revel in that joy. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name.